Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. Anytime you're in Huntsville, we hope you'll come be part of our worship. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. We hope you'll enjoy this lesson brought to us by Glenn Colley. Today's scripture for the lesson is from Mark chapter 7, verse 9 through 13. Mark 7, 9-13. He said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is Corban, that is, a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. Please be seated. We're going to launch Mark chapter 7. This is not an expository sermon, it's topical, but this passage is a great and important place to begin our discussion and our thoughts. I want to tell you how, how happy I am to see you, and we have a lot of folks who are visiting. This is a place where you'll always be welcome. And for those of you who are watching online, you know that you're always welcome too, and I hope you get better, and I hope you can come and be with us physically very, very soon. It occurs to me about this sermon that I'm about to preach that it may gender some questions, particularly from people who are not members of the Church of Christ. And I want you to know that we are really happy to sit down and talk about, answer your questions. Anything that you want to discuss about our faith or our practice here, we're we're very open to that. And so after this worship, if you have such questions will come to me or come to one of us, and we'll be happy to sit down with you and open the book. In this passage, Jesus is going to make some very strong observations on the subject of tradition. And my sermon this morning is about the difference between commandments of God and tradition. So exactly what role do traditions play or legitimately play in our religion? in our practices. Let's go back to Mark chapter 7. I want to start in verse 1. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. They'd heard about his miracles, you know, and they were really exercised about that. They wanted to put a stop to all of this. And it's very interesting what they used to come and persecute him. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. Now, the the tradition was that before you eat, you've got to wash, this is it now, the Gentiles off your hands. You may have some contamination of the Gentiles, and you've got to ceremonially wash those hands. But the disciples of Jesus had pushed that aside, and they didn't do it. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding their tradition of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, couches. In other words, they have traditions that they've created, laws that regulate all these kinds of things. Then the Pharisees and scribes ask him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? And he answered and said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, 
As it is written, the people honors me with their lips, but their hearts far from me. Now listen closely. In vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. What's he talking about? He's talking about those traditions. They've created these traditions and they're binding them. And here they're criticizing Jesus and his disciples, not on the word of God, but on these traditions. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. In my Bible, now I've underlined verse 9. And he said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition." For Moses said, and here's another example, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever you might be profited by me as Corbin, that is a gift, he shall be free. Now, that may seem a little confusing. The idea is that I know that I should be caring for my aged parents, but instead what I say according to the tradition is that my life is given to God. Therefore, everything that I own, everything I possess is a gift to God. And, and therefore, I'm sort of relieved of the duty to take care of my parents. So when my parents are in need, Corbin, Corbin, it is a gift to God. And I don't have to care for them. 13, here's Jesus' assessment of that, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. This uh, sermon really uh, was gendered because of Ray Matter. And Ray is here, and I I know I'm embarrassing him. That's not my intention. But I, well, maybe a little bit. But Ray and Terry and Elizabeth, you know, they come from New York. And they've been members here for some time, and we're really so happy to have them in Alabama and particularly in the church. And I preached recently. I don't know if it's a Q&A or what, what we're, we're talking about, but maybe a sermon. But I talked about the Jews and how that I pity present-day Jews for their doctrine because they don't have blood to atone for their sins. There is no... I mean, they reject the cross of Christ. They reject the Messiah who is Jesus Christ. So they don't have the cross. But... It, and, but, but more, I mean, just in addition to that, they don't have animal sacrifice. They don't even have animal sacrifices. I'm not saying that that would absolve them of their sins. I'm just saying that, that they, they have escaped that. They argue that those animal sacrifices were to be done at the temple. The temple was destroyed in AD 70, so no more animal sacrifices. And they live a life of prayer, but they don't have to have blood. And it's just sad. No blood to atone for the sins. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So anyway, that, that's what I preached. And, and Ray came to me and said, Oh, Glenn, they do sacrifice animals. A lot. What, Ray? I don't know what you're talking about. Chickens. He said, chickens. I'm sorry, this is news to me. I, I, I've studied my Bible and I've never seen anything like that. I, this, is, this was news to me. And so... Brooklyn. Now, it's not just Brooklyn, but in other places in the world. In Israel, you have this practice. And I don't know what percentage. I couldn't find that. What percentages of Jews practice kaparot or kaparut? I'll never pronounce it correctly. But kaparut is, is the rite that, that happens just before Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. And it happens, it varies, it happens around October uh, September, 
and and Kappa root, C-A-P-P-A-R-O-T, precedes that. And in Kappa root, what happens is that you cast your sins onto the chicken. And, and if you think I'm making fun, I'm not. These people are very sincere. They're just very, very wrong about this. But it's tradition. And so in, in Brooklyn, New York, annually, it is estimated that about, just to give you a perspective, about 50,000. This is a published number, about 50,000 chickens. They're going to they're gonna ship them in in big trucks and big containers, and one will cost you between $12 and $17. And then you also have to pay the man who sacrifices the chicken for you. So what you do is, according to the tradition, and you, you have a reading, and you take the chicken, a white one, because, you know, though your sins may be as scarlet, they shall be as wool, and you'll be as white as snow. So it needs to be a white chicken, a rooster for the man, a hen for the woman. If the woman is expecting a child and she doesn't know the gender, she needs to sacrifice one hen for her and then both a hen and a rooster for her baby because she doesn't know which one it is, right? And so you take, and you do this for your children too, you take the chicken and you grab him, they, they grab him by the, just at the root of the wings and, and for three different times they're going to go counterclockwise over the head and they're reciting something that says that, uh, that they're, being, they're, they're passing on their sins to expiate their sins so that they will live and not the chicken. The chicken will die in their place. And I know you don't believe me. All right, let's, let's run the video. I'm going to show you a news clip of this. Just before the fast, it's they who must take on the sins of Orthodox Jews. With throats cut, they slowly expire in a bucket while their killers pray. You're trying to uh, transfer all your sins. That really, when a person does a sin, you have to be killed. But God, in his mercy, says you can be spared. So we try to transfer the sins from you onto the chicken. The chicken gets killed, as you see over here. The dead chickens are later given to charity. The rites frowned upon by many more mainstream Jews. might imagine if you bought a chicken lately, uh, so a live chicken will cost you $17, give or take. And then you have to tip the man who's doing the sacrificing. And, and according to the tradition, the chickens are to be given to charity. The problem is, of course, 50,000 chickens. What are you going mean, to, you know, you have to have, for poultry, you have to have major refrigeration things, and that's rarely present. And so what you'll see online are trucks, garbage trucks the next day coming and cleaning up this terrible, terrible mess. Now, where I'm going with this discussion is the question of tradition and religion. That's, that's the sermon for this morning. I just want to pause, though, because I don't want to talk about this without making this very clear. What you've just seen is blasphemy. When John, in John 1 and verse 29, looked and saw Jesus coming, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2, he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. And so when you think about atonement for sin, this is not a small matter. This is not a trivial matter. And the Almighty God of heaven sent his son to die on that cross for us, and you know it, and by his stripes we are healed. And the very idea that you would do something that appears so pagan as to put a chicken over your head and 
because you reject the Messiah is, is a testament to the power of Satan. That's what it is. But it's also a testament to the influence of tradition. So when Jesus criticized the traditions of the Pharisees in our text this morning, in Mark chapter 7, bear in mind that those were oral traditions about washing the Gentiles off your hands. It was a tradition that was, was given by just folklore and and orally, and it was eventually put into a book. By the end of the second century, you have the Mishnah, the oral, the oral traditions. So the question is, for our discussion, what, what role do traditions legitimate, legitimately play in our religion? What should they play? Now, the first one is that, that the Bible speaks of traditions in two different ways. Very important to see. Danker, in his lexicon, observes that the word tradition, the, the Greek word for it, and I checked this, it, it's the same word whether it's represented as something good or bad, means uh, instruction that is handed down. So it's rather generic, it's rather, it's, it's not good or bad, it just depends on how it's used. Fortunately, anytime you find it in scripture, the context will immediately tell you what she's talking about. Let me illustrate the point. So, very often, tradition is used in a good sense. So here's 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2. And the Bible says, I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Now, in this case, what he's talking about is the Word of God. He's talking about the commandments of God. And Paul has talked to them, taught them these things, and now he refers to them as the traditions. They've been handed down. But according to the context, you understand that this is commandments of God. Here's 2 Thessalonians 2 and 15. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or by, by our epistle. Probably the most explicitly stated one is 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6, with which you're familiar. We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walks disorderly, ready, and not after the tradition which you received of us. The tradition there means the commands of God. And so weighty it is that, that he, he is hinging this discussion of the withdrawal of fellowship in the church on that. Now, sometimes it's in a bad sense. So here's Matthew chapter 15 and verse 3. It's the same Greek word. But here, it has to do not with the commands of God, of course, but just mere traditions of men, and in this case, that conflict somehow, that interfere with, with obeying God. So Jesus said in Matthew fifteen three, why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your traditions? And that's what happened with the washing of hands. That's what has happened in the Jews today with Kaparut. Colossians 2.8, beware lest anyone cheats you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. The law is different from traditions. The commandments of God are different from traditions. Now, you understand that, but how would you put words to it? So, in what way... I guess there's more than one. I'm sure there, there are different ways you could illustrate this, but in what way would you say the traditions of, of men are different from the laws of God? I want to point first to the fact that, that the law of God, Old Testament and New, came with miraculous demonstration 
that what was happening truly was from heaven. That's not true about man's traditions. So when you go to Exodus chapter 19, you see Moses coming to the foot of of the mountain and he climbs the mountain to receive the commands of God. And the Bible says that that the mountain shook and that you have fire, that you have lightning, there's there's an earthquake and the people of God standing around the mountain are trembling because of what's happening here. And that's when God gave Moses the commandments. When you jump to chapter 37, or 34 rather, you have Moses coming down and, and the people couldn't look at him because his face shone so brightly. Now what's going on here? And the answer is that God is saying, these commands are the law of God. This is from me. The same is true about the New Testament law. So... John chapter 20 and verse 30, many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe. What's that? The the miracles. The miracles were in order to confirm that what was being preached really was from God. Now, that's not like the traditions of men. Oh, my, that's, that's a far cry from what's going on with this. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3, and you're probably familiar with this. How, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Which at the first began to be preached by the Lord, and then was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God bearing them witness. How did he do that? Both with signs and wonders and various miracles of the Holy Spirit according to his will. What does that mean? It, it means that just what I said, the difference between traditions of men and commandments of God is the commandments of God, the law of God, always came, New Testament and Old Testament, with the miraculous. It was, it was, it was God from heaven saying, this is my beloved son, Matthew 17, in whom I'm well pleased, hear him. Why would you, why would you do that? Because this distinguishes it from traditions of men. And when you come to the practice of religion, you want it straight from God. You want it straight from God. That way, and the only way that you know that, that you're right. Traditions are different. They evolve. They evolve with different peoples, times. They're moving. They, they evolve with different tribes of people and variations, and they never, ever stop. And once, once this is elevated to be on an equal plane with the law of God, then you've crossed a terrible line because, because then you mingle the secular with the sacred and you lose. And that's what Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 7. Now here's some traditions today in religion that we ought to consider. There are two ways that people really mess up in religion over traditions. Now I want to reiterate that, that a tradition is not necessarily bad. Just because a practice had been, has been done a long time doesn't make it a wrong practice. It becomes wrong when it interferes with the Word of God, when it interferes with the commands of God or somehow confuses. There are two main ways this happens. It happens when a law of God is presented to people as tradition. I'm going to illustrate that in a minute. When the law of God is presented as merely tradition of men, and people do this a lot. I mean, you know, you have, it's not so uncommon for people to refer to the Lord's church as, as the church of Christ tradition, as that every different religion has its own tradition, and that's how religions are determined. Excuse me, but I reject that. If that, that, that makes everything confusing and foggy. It doesn't need to be foggy. 
The, the, the first way that traditions can interfere with true religion and will distort it is when people start looking at the commands and laws of God, and they call it tradition. The second way you flip it over, and that is when people look at the tra- traditions that they practice, and they call it the law of God. Now, let's get, let's get more specific about this. Liberalism is, um, is really bad about arguing in some way that there's no inflexible right or wrong, that everything is subject to personal choice or to culture, i.e., to tradition. Now, here's some examples of pretending that God's law is mere tradition. Baptism. I read from a man recently who who was talking about baptism, and he he said that, that in the Church of Christ... Immersion for baptism is the tradition. I just let that soak in. Now, let me just let's, let's, wait a minute. Let's just say this plainly. Baptism, by the definition of the original word, means immersion. That's objective truth. I mean, you, you can believe what you want, but that's never going to change. Baptism is immersion. I watched a man, I think I mentioned this to you, I watched a man in Israel the other day at the River Jordan, and he was, he was baptizing people. I mean, he saw him, and they were lined up, and he would, he would immerse them, but then you know, he would ask them before he did something to them. He would ask them, what would you like? And so some of them wanted water poured on them, somebody wanted somebody immersion or just to be submerged up to their chin, and some wanted full immersion. But I'm telling you that, that the, the fact that the Church of Christ, people in church, that we baptize by immersion has nothing to do with tradition. It is not our tradition. It's simply that the Bible uses the word baptism, commands it, and that, the, that, that baptism means immersion. Now, what about instrumental music? I, I'm not going to preach a sermon about this. I did this recently. And if you have questions about why we don't use instrumental music in our worship, uh, I, I, would let you, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that on the archives. But the fact is that according to Scripture, the New Testament church approved by God worships with congregational a cappella singing, Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16. That's not tradition. It's referred to by many people as tradition because they want everything in religion to be tied to our tradition. Everything is tradition for religion. This is your tradition, this is our tradition, and that's all that it amounts to. Well, that's just a mistake because it muddies the water. There is more. God wants a clarification about this, that there is God's law, his commandments, and then there's man's tradition. Man's tradition is not always wrong to practice if it doesn't conflict with the commands of God. But we still have the commands of God. And in reference to our music, it's instrumental or it's uh, a cappella congregational singing and not instrumental music and worship. What about the Lord's Supper? My, my, you get a lot of them about the, the Lord's Supper. That, that, the, that the law, the commandment of God is merely tradition. And so, this is, this is, some of this is just plain blasphemy. But that, um, for example, that what really is the truth is that up in the upper room at the Passover when Jesus was with his disciples... The reason he used unleavened bread and fruit of the vine is because that's what was handy. And that's really the point. And so you, you can use whatever's handy. Pepsi Cola was the illustration that was used. And so if you want to use Pepsi instead of the fruit of the vine, that's just fine. Whatever you have handy. One man stretched it to say if you're in the Middle East, or in the Far East rather, I should say, 
and, and they have a lot of rice there. You can use rice instead of unleavened bread. Now, the big problem with that, and, it, you know, it goes on. It goes on to, to you know, you, you, can, you don't have to eat the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. You don't even have to, you don't have to eat it on Sunday. You can eat it on different days. And, and it just goes on and on. That it's all just a matter of your own personal preference and your own traditions. The problem with that is Luke chapter 22 and verse 19, where Jesus said, do this in memory of me. Do this. There's a difference in the law of God and the traditions of men. What about women's role in worship? Oh, this one is so politically charged. And I don't know, maybe, maybe people, I suppose people do look at us in the churches of Christ and say, I think that, that they must just not respect women. Well, that's not true. We like them just fine, thank you. A lot of us are women, right? So here's, here's 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Now I want you to remember what Paul said on this occasion. In 1 Corinthians 14, he's talking about women in a, in a service where miracles are being practiced and some of them are standing up and they're prophesying. And in verse 34, he says, let your women keep silent in the churches for they're not permitted to speak. They're to be submissive as the law also says. In verse 37, he says, I want you to know that what I'm writing is the commandments of the Lord. Now, is that tradition? And if we, if we I know we don't have miraculous today, but he was prohibiting those women from getting up and, and preaching in front of that audience, that assembly. When you get to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12, the Bible says something very similar. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, to, but to be in silence. You say, well, maybe that's because of culture. That was just a cultural thing. Well, actually, no, because the next line says, for Adam was first formed in Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into the transgression. There's a difference between commandment and tradition. And when those two conflict, we'd better always come down on commandment. We'd always, we must always stick with what the Bible actually says. That's what we must do. And sometimes the way people mess up in religion with reference to tradition is that they take a law of God, a commandment of God, and they just call it tradition. It is a, a, an attempt at diluting the law of God so that everybody, it's this kind of an ecumenical kind of mentality, everybody's right, it doesn't really matter, this is just your preference, my preference, and we're all good. That's not how the Bible teaches it. Now here's the second way that tradition can really cause problems in religion and does. It's transforming mere tradition into law. Now, in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 2, you have another example of this. The disciples of Jesus are walking through a place where grain, maybe corn, wheat is, uh, is growing, and they, as they walk, they grab handfuls. And I've done this before where you can, you can take those stalks of wheat, and if it's if it's ripe, you just take it, you can pluck some, and you can eat as you went along. And that's what they did. That wasn't a violation of the command of God. They, were on the, they did it on the Sabbath day. And the accusation apparently was that this is the same thing as working on the Sabbath. According to our tradition, this is working on the Sabbath, and therefore mm, your disciples have done something terribly wrong here, and they really criticized Jesus. Well, Jesus straightened that out. That was not right. And sometimes people take traditions, and that's what they did on this occasion. People take traditions and they make them law. An egregious example uh, would be 
this, this Kappa Root thing that we watched, of course. Take a tradition and have people stand up and say, this is how we make atonement for our sins. We put our sins on the chicken. But a, a first cousin of that, of course, would be Catholicism. And a great egregious example would be the traditions of Catholicism. And I want to give you a quote today from Atwater, who is a noted scholar of that religion. And he said this, It is an article of faith from a decree of the Vatican Council. That tradition, now that's capitalized, is a source of theological teaching distinct from Scripture, and it is infallible. It is therefore to be received with the same internal assent as Scripture, for it is the Word of God. Does that give you the heebie-jeebies? Yeah, that's scary right there. You know, that's just... That's frightening, and what it displays is a complete lack of appreciation for the validity of and the completeness of the Scriptures, 2 Timothy 3.16, that that the Scriptures completely furnish us to every good work. There's a difference in religion between man's traditions and the commandments of God. Now, are traditions always wrong? And the answer again to that is no. But they become wrong. When I take a tradition and make it a law, or when I take a law and I make it a tradition. In the churches of Christ, we've had our share of problems with this. And in fairness, I want to spend a few minutes talking about this. Let me preface what I'm about to say with this. 1 Corinthians 1 and 10 says that we are to all speak the same thing. That there would be no divisions among us but that we are to be perfectly joined together, the same mind and the same judgment. How do we do that? How is that even possible? We're very different. We have different opinions. We come from different backgrounds and perhaps different traditional things that we've done in religion. How can you do that in the church? And the answer is elders. The answer is that here is the role of elders. And in reference to matters of judgment, they have authority. In reference to... There's so many things, the application of the commands and how we carry them out. So many things left to our our judgment. And and the the elders are the glue that hold it all together because they have authority. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. Let me give some examples of this happening. In the early days after the Restoration era, the meeting houses were typically small. One room. And you've seen some pictures of the cabins, the log structures where people would worship very early, early time in after the restoration movement. And, and so time went on and, and the churches were able to afford larger buildings more. And some said, well, you know, we need to have Bible classes. We need to bring the church together for worship on the Lord's day, but alternate, I mean, in addition to that, we need to have Bible classes. And so they were able to build other rooms. And so it made sense that the younger people would learn the Bible in one classroom and the older ones would learn it in a different classroom and everybody would grow more from that. And so there became a division because there were those who pressed against the idea of changing the one room. And and they created this division and some churches divided over this, whether or not we should have the classrooms because that was the tradition that it held. And that's an example. It's an example of taking a tradition and binding it as law, even to the point where we would divide churches. And you have a similar thing in what we call one cuppers. In the 1800s, 
churches of Christ would administer the communion, the fruit of the vine, in one cup and, and just pass it around. And was that a wrong thing to do? No, it wasn't wrong. But it became wrong when others said, you know, the important thing is the contents of the cup. What we're to drink is the contents, the fruit of the vine, and that's what represents the blood of Christ. And it's a matter of indifference whether it's from one cup or several containers. And so, so they, they said, because disease, we learn more about communicable diseases. And so let's, let's have, like we did this morning, let's have individual cups. And are, you know what happened is that the church, some churches divided over that, that question. Now what happened is that a tradition, something that became a tradition, was made into a law. What about having two worship assemblies on Sunday? Listen, I'm not opposed to that. I think it's a good thing. We've been doing it a long time. But what would you think about a congregation that said, we have people who drive a long way, and so what we're going to do is, is have just one worship assembly on the Lord's Day, and we're going to make it a little longer. We'll extend it. Or, or what, if, what if they said we're just going to have one assembly on Sunday, and we're not going to extend it? How would you feel about them? And would you say, wow, they've really fallen off the ship. They're, they've gone real liberal now. That, that's a terrible thing. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. The New Testament, so far as we know, the New Testament church only met once on the first day of the week. The fact that we meet twice is an expedient. It's, it's not a wrong thing to do, and our elders have decided that it's right for us to come back in the evening. And I think it's a great thing that we do. It's never wrong to assemble. Acts chapter 2 and 42, and that we could get back together on Sunday evening, and aren't you glad for that? That's a wonderful thing. And by the way, we're obligated because we're obligated to obey the elders. Hebrews thirteen seventeen. What if, what, if, uh, what if a church says, an eldership in a congregation, says, we're going to meet once on Sunday morning, and then that'll be the only time, and we'll just have a rented building. You know, what about church buildings? What would you think about a congregation that says it costs too much money to have a church building? We'll have a rented building, and we'll only meet on Sunday mornings, and the other times we'll have Bible studies in various places in the community. That's how we'll handle that. Well, you might say, well, I don't think that's the best way to do that. Fine. But... Are they sinning in that? And the answer is they're not. The answer is to, traditionally, I mean, generally speaking, in the churches of Christ, we worship on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. There's nothing wrong with that. I think it's a, I think it's a logical thing to do. But it would be wrong to bind that. Scripture says that the New Testament church met on the first day of the week. They met other nights and days, too, through the week. But the one big assembly was on the Lord's Day, and so far as we know, they only had one. So, you see tradition. Is it wrong to have tradition? Is it wrong for us to meet on Wednesday nights for a Bible study? No. That's a good thing. Could we change it to Tuesday? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. That, that makes me nervous. I don't think so. Of course we could change it to Tuesday. That wouldn't matter. What about, um, what about offering the invitation after our sermons? I don't think that's a wrong practice. I think it's a fine practice. And the way that, you know what, we, we're interested in souls. We want people to obey the gospel. And so when we preach, we end our sermons and we say, we're going to sing a song. And, and if anyone would like to come and re be restored or to be baptized, now is the time to do that. Let's do that. We don't really mean that it's the only time. 
You can be baptized anytime. Is that a true statement? Anytime. It's not that this is a special time. And what we mean by it is we're just, we're just offering this comfortable moment in time and, and at the end of a sermon. So we've been thinking about spiritual things and who would like to become a Christian. I don't believe it's a wrong practice. It's not a wrong tradition. But we need to know that it's a tradition. It's not that I went to the book of Acts and I found this. It's that we do it as an expedient to encourage people to become Christians. That's what we must do. We need to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We encourage people to become Christians. But must it be done this way? And the answer is no. Is it wrong to do it that way? No, not, not unless we carry it so far that if we decided to do it a different way, we would think we were sinning. For example, would it be wrong for, for us to... What if at the end of this sermon I said, um, if you'd like to obey the gospel, we'll have our elders back here, some of our Bible class teachers will be back here to study with you and to talk to you, and if you want to be baptized, we'll be happy to help you. Would that be a wrong thing to do, wrong way to handle it? No, I've never seen that before. I think about two ways that the traditions of men, and in our text today... Mark chapter 7, Jesus so strongly condemned the traditions of these Jews because they transgressed the law of God with their traditions. And I showed you a video today, which I'm not, I don't commonly do, but uh, I just didn't think you'd really believe me unless I I showed you this uh, cabaret. We transgress God's will with our traditions when we make a tradition into a law. We transgress God with our traditions when we make a law of God into a tradition as if it should be diluted and not serious attention paid. What do we do about it in our own lives? And the answer is we, we have to create in ourselves a deeper confidence in the Bible as an inspired revelation, the inspired revelation from God. It is the full and final source of our authority for our teaching and our practice. Two, we may respect the pioneers of the restoration movement, and I do, but we're not the servants of those restoration preachers. And we just need to remember that, that they were men. Our authority must be the Bible. Three, We must become dedicated students of the book, of the scriptures. So we're at a loss for direction if we are uninformed about what the Bible says. What does it actually say? And finally, we must create a sense of tolerance for people who may do some things about matters of judgment that are different from our own. And that would be consistent with what Jesus taught us in Mark chapter 7. I wonder if there's someone here this morning who wants to obey the gospel. It is our custom to, to stop at this point of our worship and ask that question. I think it's a good practice. Would you like to obey the gospel? To repent of your sins and confess Jesus and be baptized? To do just what the Bible says to become a Christian? And Acts chapter 2 says that when people do that, he adds them to his church. If you are a member and you need the prayers of the Christians today, we'll be so happy to do that with you. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word, brought to us by Glenn Colley. If you have comments or questions, Glenn can be reached by email at colley at westhuntsville.org.